You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. There have been those times in American political history when presidential candidates have chosen vice presidential running mates who are a drag on the ticket and clearly a mistaken choice, such as Eagleton or Quayle. But there have also been times when presidential candidates have chosen running mates who were good for the campaign, but who turned out to be horrible presidents. And we can safely include Spiro Agnew, vice president under Richard Nixon, and Charles Dawes, vice president under Calvin Coolidge, in that category. And in both cases, it was their conduct during their role as president of the Senate that was one of the things that led to their undoing. Spiro Agnew had not had that many years as a governor before he was selected by Richard Nixon to be his running mate. Agnew, a county commissioner in Maryland, ran for governor on the GOP ticket and caught a lucky break. The Democratic primary was won narrowly by a racist, a paving contractor who ran on an anti-integration platform. This was 1966, after the Civil Rights Bill had passed. And although Maryland is a border state hugging the South, and close to the South in many ways culturally, in this time and place, people were rejecting an anti-integration platform. And so Agnew picked up Democratic votes. He took office in 1967, and in the very next year, he was tapped to be vice president. Many Republicans in the Republican convention of 1968 preferred George Romney, father of Mitt. They shouted, Spiro who, on the convention floor. But Richard Nixon, as the candidate, got his choice. Having barely served as a governor, Agnew didn't know much about the vice presidency. But he did know one thing that anyone who looks at the Constitution knows, that the vice president serves as the president of the Senate. It's an interesting phrase and one that there's been a lot of attention on uh, recently. The term president itself is interesting. What does it mean? We now associate president with the imperial president, with the president of the United States, a strong office. But actually, the term in and of itself is kind of weak. A president is one who presides, presides over a body who presumably is doing the acting. Yet sometimes, as in the case of the Speaker of the House, a person who presides over a body has a lot of power. So which is it for the vice president when he, or perhaps in the future she, acts as the president of the Senate. Spiru Agnew decided to make the most of this role. Since he lacked any legislative experience, other than being a county commissioner, he'd never been in Congress, he made a point of learning every little intricacy of Senate floor procedure. And with the enthusiasm and passion that sometimes a beginner can bring, he began to inject himself into the Senate debates, which was contrary to the practice that predecessors had stayed away from. But it was in gathering votes for the administration that Vice President Agnew really crossed the line. During a debate over a missile treaty, 
Agnew approached an Idaho Republican, Senator Len Jordan. Jordan was very sympathetic to the administration, had been a loyal party member, and he asked him how he was going to vote. This set Jordan off. It was a breach of protocol, in his opinion. You won't twist my arm, he told him. He told Agnew. And, as Len Jordan described to his Senate colleagues and to many reporters, he instituted a Jordan rule. Whenever he was lobbied by the vice president, he would automatically vote the opposite way. And so he did. When a proposal was made that the U.S. unilaterally halt testing, the vice president said that no responsible person would propose that. The problem was a Republican senator, Edward Brooke of Massachusetts, had also made such a proposal. This annoyed Brooke and 42 other senators who were on board for at least having hearings on the plan. The measure was going nowhere until Agnew spoke out, and then the Senate started having hearings, something that wasn't a good result for the Nixon administration. By the second year of the Nixon administration, reporters were already talking about a leash that was being put on the vice president. But Agnew was perhaps tame compared to Charles G. Dawes, the vice president under Calvin Coolidge. When he faced the Senate for the very first time in 1925, while Calvin Coolidge was present and ready to be inaugurated for his second term, Dawes made a fiery speech calling on the Senate to account for wasting its time in the country's time, saying it ought to be a shame that it allowed the practice of the filibuster. Reporters noticed the president blushing. But it was not only here in the Senate that Dawes made such speeches. Delivering a speech in Chicago with two senators present, he told the Republican Women's Club of Illinois, just suppose that the chairman of a women's club were to announce any lady could talk as long as she pleased on a cure for rheumatism or the boundaries of Azerbaijan. The woman would think it an ill-timed joke for a minute. Then, if that really happened, they'd agree that the chairman was mentally unbalanced. But the United States Senate, alone, in the greatest deliberative bodies of earth, senators have the right to unlimited debate. Deliberative, bah, he said. The Senate passed a hundred bills in a hundred minutes. Not time to read their titles, and they call it a deliberative body. I don't know in history anyone who served as president of the Senate to hold the body in such ill regard. This led Senator Pat Harrison of Mississippi to call Dawes the Mussolini of American politics, threatening invasion and destruction to those of his political faith who dare to oppose his senatorial reform views. While these are extreme and unforgivable political trespasses, it's easy to see why vice presidents might be confused about what their role is. The vice presidency is an office that famously was not held in high regard by its owners. John Adams, the first vice president of the United States, called it the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. Theodore Roosevelt considered it a fifth wheel to the coach. And John Nance Gardner, vice president under Franklin Roosevelt, perhaps made the most famous comment about the vice presidency when he said the office was not worth a pitcher of warm spit. And as dismissive as that comment is, it's probable that reporters changed his quote to make it even more tame than what Gardner said. If the occupants didn't think much of the job, neither did the Constitutional Convention. They constructed this office to make other things in their plan work. With a vice president, everything seemed to fall in line. To get 
Washington as the single executive which a majority of convention delegates wanted. The supporters of a single executive versus a plural system where you might have a council of the presidency instead of just one president had to answer a simple question. What would they do if you had just one man as the executive and he died? The answer, of course, was the vice president. The idea seems to have come not out of the Virginia plan, which is really the basis for the Constitution, nor the New Jersey plan, which was the alternative presented by the smaller states at the time of the Constitutional Convention. Vice president's not part of either plan. came up during the convention debates. A problem was occurring once the convention had pretty much decided on a way to pick the president, which was a big issue, and that's the Electoral College. There was a problem with that. If you had electors in each state going to a courthouse or the state capitol to vote, these electors were prominent citizens. They were going to be influenced by the politics in their locality, and there was going to be pressure to vote for a prominent citizen of their state so as not to insult them. So you'd have a South Carolinian voting for a prominent South Carolinian, a New Yorker voting for a New Yorker, etc. The solution that the Constitutional Convention came up with is to give each elector two votes, and hopefully at least one of those votes would be cast for someone out of the region. And to enforce that it would be cast for someone out of the state one of those votes had to be cast for an inhabitant who wa- a person who wasn't an inhabitant of their state. But then it had to be explained, why are you giving electors two votes for president? Well, one vote conceivably was for president and the other for vice president. Now, that's the functional reason for the vice presidency in the constitutional system. What does a vice president do from day to day? The answer seems to have come out of Not, again, the Virginia plan or the New Jersey plan, which didn't mention the vice president, but from Alexander Hamilton's solo proposal, a speech that he made to the Constitutional Convention, the most radical plan presented, which would have eliminated state governments in the United States and had a national government only. The plan was so radical for 1787 that it went dead without a vote on it. But during that speech, Hamilton, knowing Washington, his good friend and mentor, was to be the first executive. But of course, one of the criticisms was, what if you have one person and they die? In his proposal, he suggested this is no problem. Have the president of the Senate take over as the executive. That's not what happened. But the germ of the idea seems to have come from Hamilton's speech. When the Constitutional Convention broke up, and formed a small committee of detail to get so many of these ideas that had been flying around pen to paper. They borrowed this idea, but reversed it, sort of. Instead of making the president of Senate the president, they decided that the vice president could act as the president of the Senate. And this is the only day-to-day job of the vice president, that he shall be the president of the Senate. He stands in line for the presidency. He votes to break a tie in the Senate and he accepts the electoral votes. But his day-to-day job is to be the president of the Senate. Not everyone was happy with this. Uh, Elbridge Gerry, a delegate to the Constitution, who would later become vice president himself, declared that the framers might as well put the president himself as head of the legislature. 
it did seem to violate the separation of powers. But Roger Sherman of Connecticut probably made what was the most convincing, if not very explanatory, argument. If the vice president were not to be president of the Senate, he would be without employment. Most of the delegates agreed with Sherman. He's to be given this job because without it, he has no job. It also served a slight mechanical function. If the vice president were presiding, no senator had to give up a vote to go up to the podium or the desk at that point and preside over the body. No state would be at a disadvantage. The totality of evidence from the Constitutional Convention would seem to indicate that while they were insistent on giving this job of President of the Senate to the Vice President, it largely was to make the system function. And there didn't seem to be an intention to have a strong leader of the Senate. The role of the President of the Senate has come into focus recently. As the vice presidential debate last week made each candidate explain what they thought the vice president did. And as the current vice president, Dick Cheney, is claiming a special status as president of the Senate and saying that because he serves in that role, he cannot be considered a member of the executive branch. Even the first vice president, John Adams, was a bit confused by his role as president of the Senate. In 1789, When the Senate assembled for the inauguration of President Washington, the first vice president faced the Senate and asked, When the president comes to the Senate, what shall I be? I cannot be president when the president is here. I wish you gentlemen to think what I shall be. But despite his question at the beginning of his term, he decided to treat the role as president of the Senate aggressively. John Adams cast 29 tie-breaking votes. That's the most in history. Uh, John Calhoun came close with 28. And no vice president has come anywhere near that since. It's rough to get a body of 100 exactly tied. Recent memorable moments occurred when Al Gore cast a tie vote to pass Bill Clinton's first budget in 1993, or when after the 2000 election, the Senate was split 50-50 between the parties, and there was talk of using Dick Cheney's tiebreaker vote to control the committee structure of the Senate. Instead, a deal was worked out. But John Adams had some important votes. His vote protected the president's sole authority to remove appointees. It influenced the location of the national capital. That was an Adams tiebreaker vote. And it prevented war with Great Britain. He used his role as the president of the Senate to try to persuade senators how to vote something that presidents of the Senate don't do at the current time. And he frequently lectured the Senate on procedure and policy and how to conduct themselves as a body. This made him a critic for opponents of the Washington administration. And towards the end of his first term as vice president, when some of the opponents of the Washington administration were starting to gain some strength, 
there was a threat of a resolution that would have forced him to be silent, except for procedural and policy matters. To avoid this, he began to exercise a little bit more restraint. And, of course, Adams was keeping his eye on the election of 1796 when he would want to run for president and didn't want to do anything to hurt that. Adams' silence created a precedent for future vice presidents acting as president of the Senate. When Thomas Jefferson became John Adams' vice president, he had no interest in being an aggressive president of the Senate. It was a great position for him. He enjoyed it. Uh, He thought it was a great place to gather information and prepare his own run for the presidency. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. In general, in the 20th century and the early 21st, the role of the vice president has been growing. A lot of people will point to Walter Mondale, Jimmy Carter's vice president, as the kind of turning point in the vice presidency. Perhaps it was, but there are a couple steps along the way. Thomas Marshall, who was Woodrow Wilson's vice president, was not always treated well by Wilson, but he was the first vice president allowed to chair cabinet meetings, 
while Wilson was out of the country. After all, Wilson was the first president to leave the country while a sitting president. And so letting Marshall chair those cabinet meetings set a precedent for future uh, vice presidents. After Marshall, Coolidge, Dawes, and Curtis were allowed into cabinet meetings. And John Nance Gardner, for all his talk about the vice presidency being a bucket of warm spit and all that, sat in cabinet meetings and voiced his concern about New Deal programs, a lot of which he disagreed with and some he called plain damn foolishness. But he didn't talk to the press and he didn't speak out loud in the Senate. I am the silent partner in the firm of Roosevelt and Gardner, he said. The chief does all the talking for the firm. Vice Presidents Albin Barkley and Richard Nixon also increased the prestige of the office, with Nixon sort of acting as party leader during Eisenhower's term and gaining the presidential nomination for himself. But when Jimmy Carter, who hadn't had a lot of Washington experience, ascended to the presidency, Walter Mondale's role increased the office, increased the visibility of the office. Mondale, who had a a good relationship with Carter and used to joke about it, said, this is the imperial vice presidency. He was really in the crossroads of foreign and domestic policy in the Carter administration. And he was the first vice president to get an office in the West Wing. And anyone who knows internal Washington politics knows that proximity to the president is the most important thing. In another joke, Mondale dubbed his old office, which is in the executive office building just a few steps away from the White House, he dubbed it Baltimore because of its remoteness from the West Wing where the real decisions were made. But while the office of the vice presidency has increased in prestige, The role of the President of the Senate has not. In fact, if anything, it's declined. Very often, the Vice President does not chair the Senate meetings, only in important votes or ceremonious occasions. If elected Vice President, Senator Joe Biden of Delaware will face a decline in his real visible power when he walks on the floor of the Senate, just like Charles Curtis did, just like Albin Barkley did, just like Lyndon Johnson did when they came from the Senate to the vice presidency, same with Al Gore. He'll lose his vote, except in very rare cases. He may gain some influence in legislation or how the federal government works, but that influence will be delegated or granted to him by the decision of a President Barack Obama. It could even be said that if Sarah Palin gets elected to the vice presidency, she'll have less to decide than as the governor of Alaska. Again, unless things are delegated to her by a president, John McCain. While recent improvements in the executive branch duties of the vice president have kind of made up for that, this was noticed very much by Lyndon Johnson when he was vice president and attempted to get some of the senators to follow him just like they had done as majority leader. 
That didn't go over well. Johnson, it was considered, was now part of the executive branch, could preside over the meetings and break ties, but that was it. There's one point to consider here, and that is the point that Vice President Dick Cheney is currently bringing up. In court cases where he's being asked to turn over documents, Dick Cheney's claiming that he doesn't have to because, as Vice President, he's not a member of the executive branch. And the reason, he says, is that he is the President of the Senate. Well, that would seem to be easy to rectify. Therefore, he's a member of the legislative branch. And therefore, the legislative branch can ask him for any kind of papers that they want, and he'd have to turn that over. But no, Cheney and his lawyers assert, he is not a member of the executive branch nor the legislative branch. He is in a kind of constitutional netherworld. He is a member of neither branch because he has roles in both. Well, it will probably be some time before any court decides it, and we can't be sure of how they'll come down. I think there's a couple of things that undermine the argument of Cheney and his lawyers. One is that if we are to argue that the vice presidency exists in a different place between the executive and the legislative branch, that would imply a level of focus on this office, that this office is a kind of constitutional superstar that was thought about quite a bit by the framers, which it clearly was not from any of the debates or what's actually in the Constitution. There's not a lot of evidence that the vice presidency deserves a special place. Secondly, it's the vice president is clearly elected on the same day, in the same place, in the same election as the president. It was changed from the system of giving each elector the two votes and turned into a separate vote for president and vice president, but occurring at the same day at the same time, connecting those two offices. If we're to interpret the Constitution at all by precedent, or by what people have done since the writing of it, the action for the vice president in the modern times has been all in the executive branch. It's the executive branch duties, not the duties of the vice president as president of the Senate, that investigators would be most interested in. And to argue otherwise, to me, would just appear to be trying to escape from an investigation. The other precedents we see from some of these examples of those who sort of touch the electric fence with the Senate is that the vice president doesn't have much of a legislative role other than breaking that rare tie and simply presiding over the office. The vice president's legislative role is minimal. I think the most logical interpretation is that for a particular purpose that was necessary to make the constitutional system they created work, the framers of the Constitution borrowed an individual from the executive branch and temporarily placed them in a legislative purpose. And thus, the vice president is the president of the Senate. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.